Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Victor Hogreef. He's the co-founder and chief business officer at Eon Labs. Victor, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what you guys are doing at Eon Labs and while all the stuff we're talking about is very innovative and cool and very timely. But maybe before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. For sure, yeah. Um, I grew up in Germany. Um, okay, very cool. But had had lived previously in Canada when I was very, very young, uh, but mainly grew up in Germany and did my whole schooling here um, and then came to Canada for university. I went to University of British Columbia. Um, I studied philosophy mainly. I wanted to be a professor in philosophy. <laughs> OK, what made and, you want to do that early on? Yeah. So uh, of all my kind of first year courses and first year, um, I don't know how if you've had this experience, but in first year, people don't really know what they want to study. And so they take kind of a broad um, menu of courses. Uh, philosophy really struck me as very interesting. And uh, I've always kind of enjoyed that also in my my previous, you know, high school life. Um, so so I was really fascinated with philosophy, with argumentation, discussion, um, thinking about wide range of ideas, both morally, metaphysically. Um, I always enjoyed discussing religion, uh, always fascinated by it. So that's kind of why why I wanted to do that. And I want to become a professor in philosophy. Um, my family was is uh, partially academic. Um, so my father was a professor in economics. And so I kind of tended towards the academic world anyway. Gotcha. Yeah, but uh, but then in my third year of university, I kind of became disenchanted with the whole idea of philosophy uh, or uh, academia. Uh, Why is that? More precisely, um, because I, I found it to be very uh, political and very mm, charged in in certain ways. There was there wasn't a lot of of good quality discussion going on. Uh, I felt. Um, and and also the school of philosophy that I really preferred, analytic philosophy, was for some reason very disfavored amongst all my peers. They all hated analytic. They wanted to do continental philosophy, which I didn't really like at all. So that's kind of two two reasons why uh, the, the whole the whole idea didn't sit well with me to continue with philosophy. So then I, I thought what I wanted to do, and um, I essentially dived into computer science more because. Computers are another field that I find very fascinating, and there's actually a, an overlap with philosophy and namely with logic. Um, sure. Kind of formal, formal logic and computer science are, are very closely connected. Um, so yeah, then I, I basically finished my schooling in computer science, um, went to some additional uh, university courses at the University of Washington and Harvard for a summer, uh, which cool. was very worthwhile. Um, and right after that, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. On paper, I looked kind of bad because I had this half philosophy, half computer science degree. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't very appealing, I think, uh, if I wanted to apply for, for kind of corporate jobs or anything like that. Um, so luckily, my friend called me up and said, have you heard of crypto? Have you heard of Bitcoin? 
And I said, yeah, I kind of heard of it, but I don't know much about it. Um, so then he told me to download the app right now, the wallet, and he sent me some while I was on the call with him and I sent him some back and I was immediately hooked because I was in Europe and he was in North America at the time. That's cool. And kind of it, it, it blew my mind in terms of the possibilities of financial freedom and um, how easily it was, how easy it was to, to send money. If you have a lot of uh, experience with the SWIFT system, the banking system, and sending yeah. money abroad, it's, it's a nightmare. It's terrible. <laughs> why can't we Why can't we send emails in a second anywhere yeah. in the world? Yeah. But we have to, you know, pay 70 bucks or so or more uh, and wait four days to send some money. And sometimes the banks won't even do it. If you want to send money to Bangladesh, like, good luck. You know, it has to, it has to bounce through five different banks and, and maybe they won't even allow it. Um, so, yeah. Um, I fell in love with with Bitcoin and and my friend and I we knew that we wanted to do something with Bitcoin. We had no idea what, but we knew we wanted to do something. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I I came back to Vancouver and uh, immediately joined all kinds of like little crypto groups. There was a great um, kind of hacker space in Vancouver called Decontrol, um, and it has a, a grungy underground anarchist <laughs> hacker space that was awesome. crypto crypto focused and a lot of big people in the crypto space have moved through there uh, vitalik buterin was there um shortly before he launched ethereum um and, and many others so that was a great space to be in uh, they they put on little educational seminars and and just discussions and everything i also joined the um ubc bitcoin club okay. and uh, i was recently reflecting on it and and a lot of people from the bitcoin club at ubc went on to to really do great things in crypto for instance um crypto kitties uh, i don't know if you're familiar yeah. with that yeah but uh, some of the people who were involved in crypto kitties were involved with the ubc bitcoin club that's cool um, a friend of mine who was involved in the bitcoin club recently uh, won a big startup uh, pitch competition international pitch competition in dubai nice um, other people are having their own other startups so it's it's really cool uh, some someone is working for coinbase I'm really kind of proud of, of that little crypto community at the UBC club. Anyway, um, my friend and I, we we thought for a long time what we wanted to do, brainstormed a bunch, uh, and we thought, well, crypto is a crypto, it's a currency, so obviously we want to enable people to pay for goods and services with it, so let's design a little app um, okay. that allows people to do that. And since I had just finished all kinds of courses on Java and programming, um, I thought uh, I'll just start uh, creating an Android application that allows you to, it, it was essentially a payment processor. Okay. And we, we talked to various businesses around Vancouver and we said, uh, would you do this? And of course, if you talk to small business owners, often when you give them a free, something that's free and might help their business, they're not going to say no. Sure. Um, so a lot of them, a lot of them said yes, and let's try it. Um, and then the problem that we faced was that no one was paying for crypto. <laughs> ah. or no one was paying with crypto for anything. Got you. Because, um, first of all, almost nobody had crypto at the time. This was like early 2017. Oh, yeah, pretty early still. And, uh, and the other problem was that even the people who had crypto didn't want to pay for anything with crypto because they thought the price would go up. And so why right. would you give away your crypto? Right. Interesting. Okay, sure. So we, so we kind of shelved that idea. That was kind of our first failed idea. Okay. Um, and then we pivoted uh, as the crypto bubble in 2017 began rolling. We we pivoted to just helping people get into crypto. Um, we we helped them kind of download wallets. We helped them understand the space better. We gave um, educational talks and seminars. 
Um, and, uh, and we also did a bunch of, of buying and selling of crypto to people kind of in the Vancouver community. Okay, interesting. And then um, that went well for a while, but as the, the bubble kind of increased and got crazier, um, we soon noticed that people were asking for crypto who had really no business asking for crypto, um, like old ladies and and people who had no idea what it was, but you know their their nephew had told them to buy crypto or zero x token or whatever. Often okay. we've heard of these tokens before, and then people who had didn't know how to use a laptop wanted to buy a hundred thousand dollars worth of this stuff. So then we were wow. we kind of felt this was getting too crazy. So let's get out of this game. Um, it's kind of that story of when your hairdresser talks to you about the investment, then you know that that investment is a bubble. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I had a similar experience with the border guard, actually. Like I crossed the U.S.-Canadian border and the border guard okay. asked me what to do. Um, and I said crypto and he said, oh, yeah, I'm invested in so-and-so token. And that's when I knew <laughs> to get out. <laughs> um, so uh, the, the bubble burst. Um, but but at, right after the Bitcoin bubble, of course, you had the ICO bubble in 2018. Um, so we pivoted to that. We, we uh, helped businesses kind of um, design token architectures and, and design and, and consulted essentially on, on ICOs and, and various um, Ethereum-based offerings. But it wasn't really what we wanted to do. It was, yeah, a lot of people did that at the time who were just generally in crypto um, just because that's where the money was for that brief moment. Right. Um, but it wasn't very you know, satisfying or fulfilling or, you know. Um, so then the opportunity came along to do something in the analytics space. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the analytics space, but essentially yeah. um, crypto uh, like Bitcoin is of course synonymous. So you, you don't really know who's sending transactions to who, but all the transactions are, uh, um, transparent so everyone can see every transaction that ever happened right right so then you can actually design software to use statistics and various heuristical methods to track transactions through the network and to group addresses together and to kind of see who is spending which money or what money and what money is touching the dark markets what money is maybe used for illicit financial operations um, money laundering these kinds of things so governments banks financial institutions were more and more interested in this this information, um, mainly probably on the on the in the private sector, mainly because they wanted to make sure to get the stamp of approval from a third party to right. say that this crypto isn't being money laundered. Right. Um, so so then uh, North American companies were uh, Chainalysis. They're kind of the biggest one in that space. Chainalysis, um, Coin, uh, what's Cipher Trace? Uh, Cipher Trace, I think it's called. There's a bunch. Um, crystal blockchain in Europe. We had a connection in China to do the same thing in China. So oh, we were one of those. We were one of those startups that got poached by the Chinese, and then we we went over to China. Um, they offered us a bunch of money. They raised like a million dollars for us, and uh, wow. we we just had to come over to China to Shenzhen and uh, open an office, hire a bunch of Chinese developers, and um build our product and, and that's what we did <laughs> and uh interesting okay so walk us through that experience like was there a language barrier oh, uh, yeah. cultural differences and then just like how do you set up a business in a totally different country like that right right yeah so 
I think a lot of people who are in a similar position will have experienced this um, when they have a, they're kind of young and they have a cool startup idea and it's, it's very early stage. Yeah. And then one of these Chinese venture funds, or maybe even just Chinese business people, um, they take notice or they just know you through a connection of a connection. And then they, they want to bring it over to China because they have connections in the Chinese market or in the Chinese party in the communist party. And, um, and they think they can, they can make a lot of money with it. And uh, since we were young and hungry and poor, <laughs> we, <laughs> we of course went for it. Um, but kind of there were red flags from the beginning. Okay. Um, the, what I mean, what were some of those red flags just for people if they're in an, ever in a similar situation? <laughs> yeah, the the red flags were that um, our particular Chinese partners they were not very. Um, they weren't happy to pay us. <laughs> ah. They, they, they often delayed payment for quite a while. Uh, it was always a struggle to get any kind of money out of them. Um, and then when we came over to China, we we realized that the whole structure of this deal was that they own fifty one percent of it by law. That that's necessary. The Chinese have to own fifty one percent of it. Ah. Um, they controlled all the money. Um, right. And they essentially made all the decisions, uh, even though they didn't really understand what the technology was or what we were trying to build. So kind of from their perspective, they were these older businessmen um, who thought that we were just these young tech guys and had an idea and um, they could just tell us to build it. And, you know, um, they wouldn't really pay us or they weren't happy to pay us. And then they wanted to probably sell it or or do some deal with, you know, their other business partners in China or something like that. Um, so I think a lot, yeah, this, I've talked to a bunch of people who've, who've had similar experiences in China, unfortunately, um, it often seems to go kind of like that. Ah, um, interesting. Then, um, they, yeah, they, they also often didn't pay the Chinese developers. So not, they, they didn't just not pay us. They also didn't pay the developers. Ah. Um, so after a while it, it got pretty tense and, uh, we left China, the kind of the project went on, we finished the first phase of the project as planned. At which point uh, the Chinese partners were supposed to raise more money for kind of the second stage of the project. Yeah. But then coronavirus happened, like, yeah, uh, COVID right. happened and uh, that kind of never went anywhere. And so the project kind of just died. Um, I see. But in China was interesting. Uh, the, the way they do business is uh, you have to know people in the local party. Um, okay. So uh, during the day we were working in the office. And uh, in the evenings, we would go out with these local party representatives. Uh, Interesting. And, get, and they got blind drunk and um, <laughs> <laughs> never, never, never once talked about business during those during those outings. But it was kind of like a networking thing. Okay. Um, and uh, if they like you, they like you, and and then they'll try to, uh, you know, help you with with the business stuff. That that uh, seems to be the way it works. <laughs> Interesting. That must have just been a fascinating experience. Super fascinating. I mean, great learning experience. Sure. Um, but one of the big lessons, of course, was that uh, if you see red flags from the beginning, yeah, don't assume that those red flags were just going to go away after after a while, because that's what we kept telling ourselves. We kept telling ourselves, oh, once we did this, or once we finish phase one, or once we do this or that, then suddenly it's going to be better. And the expectation that things would get better that was just a wrong expectation, a false expectation. Got you. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we came back to uh, came back to Canada, and um, COVID was raging, and luckily, um, kind of in the year before, 
I had briefly worked on a project in Vancouver with a friend I met at Decontrol, actually, okay. um, which was uh, launching the, the EOS mainnet. We, we were kind of interested in, in helping doing that and being a, an EOS block producing node. So we, um, we worked on that and, and that's kind of how I developed uh, kind of a working relationship with uh, Chen, who is the co- now my co-founder in Eon Labs. Um, and uh, yeah, I enjoyed working with him and he was a brilliant uh, software developer. Okay. Um, and around the time when we, we got back from China, he called me up and he said, I've been working on this uh, algorithmic trading system uh, for crypto. Um, why don't you take a look at it? So uh, I took a look at it and, and uh, it was pretty cool, but I was very skeptical. And in fact, I've, I've written articles prior to this. I've written articles about um, trading algorithms and how that I'm basically coming from a, from a skeptic's point of view. I didn't think that pure technical analysis trading algorithms could reliably um, turn a profit in the markets. So okay. I, was, I was very skeptical. Um, but I looked at it at the algorithm. I looked at uh, what it did. We, we put a bit of money in it, our own money, um, kept developing it, and it kept working. So I was kind of proven wrong, I suppose. And uh, that was April of 2020, so almost two years ago now. And we kept putting money in, then opened it up to friends and family and kind of our network of investors. Um, at some point, the, the amount of money in the system grew to the point where we had to uh, make a decision about the the legal structure of this whole thing because okay. we didn't want to um, you know have these this liability or potential securities laws apply to us that we didn't know about so we we branched off we basically said there's the software company eon labs which is a research and development company um, and then we'll partner with third-party financial institutions to actually own and operate the funds um, and then we license the software to those funds. Uh, and that's kind of how we operate now. Um, there's two structures right now. There's one in Canada, in Vancouver, uh, and one um, in the British Virgin Isles, which is being set up right now. Uh, those are two funds, um, and we essentially trade, or, or these funds trade with our with our algorithmic trading system. It's a high-frequency futures trading system that uh, does Bitcoin and Ethereum futures, and uh, it's been doing very well. So we're we're pretty happy with it. And and there's about there's yeah uh, that's that's pretty much brings us to today. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So how like how does somebody like myself then? user technology i need to go to an institution that's already using your trading system is that how i understand this yeah so um anyone who would want to invest in this kind of thing yeah uh, they would have to go to one of these funds and uh, and do all the um the proper you know onboarding to the fund like the kyc stuff and those funds are, are fully licensed um financial institutions so essentially we we uh, unburdened ourselves from all that regulatory stuff so that we can focus on on the software um which is what our our strong suit is so this financial the financial world and financial regulations are really um a pain to deal with <laughs> yeah i can imagine no that that makes sense so i'm curious then 
is there like a minimum that you need to put in with these institutions or does it really depend on who the financial company is that you go to? Yeah, it depends on the financial company. Um, however, there are minimums, so this isn't necessarily for, you know, the average person on the street. Uh, right. usually, usually our minimums are somewhere around thirty or $40,000 okay. um, for, for those institutions. So it's it's not yeah it's it's not uh, it's not something for everybody. I mean it is high risk. It's a it's a high frequency quantitative trading system for cryptocurrency futures. I mean, <laughs> I mean that is a mouthful, but like it is a very high risk investment strategy. Yeah, that's fair. Well, crypto can go like Bitcoin can sometimes go up and down like ten grand in a day. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, fair enough. The nice, the nice thing about our system is that we're uncorrelated with bitcoin in general um, right because we we're market neutral so we trade both long and short uh, okay which means that whether crypto goes up or down doesn't really matter to us um as long as there's sufficient volatility it's it's good usually got you okay mm -hmm. so then how does block space play play into this mm -hmm. so block space was the analytics company that went over to china okay um, that was basically the first real company i founded uh, with a former business partner of mine um we went our separate ways uh even before china and then i came back from china and um now block space is mainly consulting on certain blockchain projects there was a supply chain project in, in vancouver but okay. my main focus is on eon labs and um and the uh, trading algorithms yeah got you okay so i want to step back a little bit for people that don't understand what cryptocurrency is or even trading, how do you explain it to people that don't understand it? Yeah. Um, well, uh, the blockchain, hmm, where to start? <laughs> it's challenging, right? Yeah. So there's kind of various ways in which you can approach this explanation. Um, there's kind of the way that makes people understand what blockchain technology is and what the whole reason for Bitcoin's existence is. And then there's kind of a way in which you can explain it without really going into the fundamentals of it by just saying it's a, essentially it's some sort of digital asset. Um, it has limited supply and uh, it, uh, you can send it all over the world. It's, it's independent of governments and there's no um, financial institution that controls it, so to speak, right? Right. But that kind of, when people talk like that, I find it always kind of misses the point of what it really is. Um, namely a, a, a solution to a, to a problem um, that was a problem of distributed consensus that was posed, I think, in the 1980s uh, and was considered unsolvable um, until 2008 when uh, Satoshi Nakamoto published this eight-page paper anonymously and uh, proposed a solution, and that solution is Bitcoin. Right. So what, what it is really is... It creates a, a network of nodes or participants, really, um, that can all agree on a state of information without there being a boss. Uh, and that's actually very, very difficult to do from a computer science and mathematics point of view, um, because you have a, a problem of infinite regress um, with you know who's to say what's the correct state of information. And the state of information here is really arbitrary. The state of information could be, you know, transactional information. It could be general code like in Ethereum, uh, or it could be, you know, what the weather is. It doesn't matter. 
Um, the, the important thing is that there is consensus on what the state of information is. And so Bitcoin design, uh, uh, combined several technologies that kind of already existed into this new thing, this new data structure called the blockchain. Um, and, and among these new, and among these uh, innovations are uh, a proof of work um, and, and the whole idea of uh, deterministically creating um, a chain of uh, contributions to the network, to the data structure. So yeah, I, I don't know how technical you want to go here, but uh... sure. No, I I think I think that that makes sense. I think that's a good explanation of it. So I'm I'm curious then, how do you see the future of crypto playing out? Because I honestly think that it's probably going to be very much relevant, and people are going to probably use it almost daily within three to five years, like I'm talking to the general public. I know people are using it daily mm -hmm. now. And there, um, was it like one country just, uh, took, like, yeah. yeah, it was basically you, you can, you have to, you, you can use it everywhere. So mm -hmm. it's coming. It's already here really. Yeah. Yeah. And there's actually a big debate for the last few years. There's been a big debate in the, in the Bitcoin community. What exactly Bitcoin is, is it a currency? Is it some sort of digital asset? Is it something else? Um, I kind of fall on the side of saying that it's not a currency because it doesn't fulfill one of the main requirements of a currency, which is price stability or some some kind of price stability that that allows people to do commerce in a way that they can, you know, reasonably make assumptions about the next couple of months and paying their employees and paying for, you know, supplies and, and these kinds of things. Gotcha. Um, okay. Uh, so so I don't think it's it's really a currency. So the, the word cryptocurrency is a bit of a misnomer. However, there are currencies in the cryptocurrency space. Um, namely stable coins. So those coins uh, are essentially like Bitcoin or Ethereum, but they don't have the price instability. Their value is pegged to the US dollar, for instance, or the euro. Um, and uh, I, I, I really believe in the, the future of stable coins as currency. Um, Got it. Okay. In, in, terms of, in terms of what Bitcoin might be in the future, um, it might prove to be a kind of gold standard. It might prove to be a kind of um, anchor of value for a lot of other stuff that might happen in the in the crypto space. Uh, for instance, stable coins, um, and it it certainly is also uh, uh, my friend used to say uh, a financial instrument of last resort for people who just don't have banks, um, don't have access to any kind of financial stable financial system or um, reliable currency, uh, like in you know like Venezuela, for instance, um, and in those places, Bitcoin as a currency might make more sense than in the Western world, where typically we have pretty good banking, except if you do you know international wire transfers and stuff like that, that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, um, the, the the another interesting philosophical aspect and political aspect, I suppose, is the the general trend of technology is that of centralization. Okay. Um, so Peter Thiel famously said, uh, all artificial intelligence is totalitarian. Um, what that means is you're more and more you're, you're relying on artificial intelligence, which relies on huge amounts of data um, that is concentrated in, small, in fewer and fewer companies and fewer and fewer hands and allows, and, and the conclusions um, reached by these, uh, machine learning algorithms 
um, control our lives to a greater and greater degree. Um, plus, there's more and more censorship, there's more and more control, there's more and more um, our data being sold or being used without our consent or knowledge. Um, so everything in technology seems to have a centralizing totalitarian trend, except for blockchain and cryptocurrency. That's kind of like the, the counter trend. And that's kind of fascinating in itself because the, the, the world of technology, uh, technology ha has this, this feature that tends towards centralization because there is no um, marginal cost of um, growth or expansion. Um, so if you're selling cars, for instance, or manufacturing cars or manufacturing anything really, then there's a limit, first of all, to how much you can manufacture and each additional unit you manufacture costs you a certain amount of money. And, you know, building another factory in another town or in another country is very expensive or shipping right. all that stuff over there is very expensive. But with technology, you don't have any of these limitations. Um, you can essentially just have one Facebook, you can have one Google, you can have one Twitter. You don't need a Twitter or a Facebook or a Google in every town or in every country. Um, so that alone is kind of a dangerous um, just fact of life, I suppose. <laughs> it's, a, it's a dangerous uh, um, trend towards, towards uh, concentrating wealth and power and information in fewer and fewer companies and hands. And more and more people are suggesting that uh, governments aren't really the powerful ones. It's it's Google and and Facebook totally. and these tech giants, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So so uh, cryptocurrency might be uh, a light in the dark um, when it comes to that kind of thing because it truly empowers the individual to take responsibility of their own finances and to actually own something themselves and not to have to trust anybody. Um, and, and at the same time, be private and anonymous to a reasonable uh, degree. Interesting. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It, it is quite fascinating. And it does kind of level the playing field a little bit. And I am super fascinated to know where this goes long term. But I'm curious to go back to the trading platform a little bit. Mm -hmm. How does what you just outlined... Uh, I guess, like, structure your roadmap of what you guys are trying to do with the trading software. Are you guys have your own thing? Are you really following what's kind of happening in the, you know, like in the space? Or or how does that kind of play into all of all of this? Yeah, so um, we are very, very interested in decentralized finance uh, and expanding our operations into the decentralized finance world. Right now, um, our system relies on centralized exchanges. Okay. Um, and that's kind of where most of the volume is. But last year, uh, decentralized finance really blew up. And, totally. uh, and I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of it uh, because essentially it allows people to, to cut out the middleman of the exchange and just um, never give up custody of their own funds and only interact with smart contracts rather than having to interact with you know, companies. Um, and if you if we extrapolate that idea further into the future, I think company structures might be more and more replaced by um, jurisdictionless, decentralized, autonomous organizations. Uh, I think that's kind of where at least one one future of the economy lies, of the digital economy at least, is uh, is organizations that 
exist everywhere at once. They don't have an office necessarily. They don't have a jurisdiction. They're not registered anywhere, and they're fundamentally indestructible. Um, and but they can engage in in real actions, and they can actually do things and and produce products and uh, vote on on. They can have a board of directors and all this kind of stuff, anonymous even um, if they want to, um, and they can create uh, digital products. And so as our, our as our lives move more and more into the digital space, as we're seeing right now, and as we've seen through the pandemic, people spend more and more time online. Um, the the focus of life in general is shifting into the the digital world, um, and uh, I think cryptocurrency, blockchain. Um, NFTs, decentralized finance, these will all be the backbone of a more and more mature digital space that becomes more than just, you know, a website or uh, a, a browser or something like that. It becomes a true environment uh, where people can spend most of their lives and have most of their experiences. There's, of course, a, a certain interface problem right now because it, right now we interface with these things through computer screens. Um, and uh, virtual reality just hasn't gotten that far yet. But um, those are kind of different problems that, you know, perhaps Elon Musk is working on somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> sure. No, that, that makes sense. So I'm curious then, how is what you guys are building open source is the wrong way, but like, as, like, can I, as a third party software developer, connect to what you guys are doing from an API or actually build software on top of your platform? Is that something I can do now or will be able to do in the future? Um, probably not, no. Okay. Because with the uh, the current, so what Eon Labs does is essentially uh, it creates ways to, to maximize um, to maximize the profit that can be made from excitement in the crypto space from a financial ah. point of view. Right. Okay. So it's essentially think of it as a financial company or or a or a company that supplies services to financial companies. Um, okay. So we can we can talk all day about the philosophy of blockchain and the politics of it and and the very interesting technological developments that happen. Yeah. Um, but those are perhaps a slightly different topic than what we do as a company at the moment. Yeah. G got you. Okay. And then, but so even the partners that are using your platform, they, they're not developing on top of it then? No, no. Okay, okay, got it. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so how does blockchain play into all this or does it at all? Uh, in terms of what we do? Yeah, like does it, are you guys like, is, it, is the underlying technology built on blockchain or no? Not directly, uh, but we, the 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 instruments that we we trade um, okay. are you know uh, cryptocurrencies uh, and 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 their derivatives. So in that sense, it's connected to blockchain because we we do trade Bitcoin and Ethereum and Bitcoin right. futures okay. and Ethereum futures and, and this kind of thing, right? Right. Um, so that in that sense, it's it's cryptocurrency related. Yes. Got you. Okay. But like um, <laughs> there is there is this whole there are these different kind of categories and these different worlds, I suppose. There's the world of people creating decentralized applications. There's the world of, you know, the philosophy of it all. Um, and then there's also just the financial world. And most of the crazy volatility in the Bitcoin space and all that 
that's all based on the financial world being speculative and and a lot of you know uh, people just buying and selling based based on the idea that they they want to make money um, and uh, they want to get rich off of crypto or or you know they're just playing the markets um, so that's kind of its whole a whole different world as well yeah no that's fair it also seems fascinating to me that like we all know that like certain people tweet something and there's all the rage for a certain type of currency for you know a few days and it's just it's interesting how anybody with some sort of status can affect the price of some of these coins almost instantly yeah um and most famously of course elon musk uh has tweeted some things or said some things and that has had a huge implication uh price-wise totally and in the beginning people liked that because he was drawing attention to the crypto space right but um but now i think most people are kind of just annoyed with it because it seems unreasonable for one person to have that kind of market moving power right um, and uh and also the things he's he's promoting are you know uh well i don't want to be elitist but they're not necessarily uh the things that uh would be considered serious you know like dogecoin and, and shiba inu and and these kind of meme coins um yes. <laughs> they're fun and everything but what what has elon musk to do with these kind of things and and why is that important for you know the future of the financial system or or anything so um most people think i think that uh that he, he he should probably stop doing that kind of thing interesting no i yeah it's it's interesting right so i'm, I'm curious if people are looking to get into the the crypto space what advice do you give them and is there any resources or anything out there that you suggest for them to just get a basic understanding and and maybe start buying some coins mm -hmm. yeah so um generally i would suggest that people read the bitcoin white paper because all of blockchain and all of cryptocurrency is based on on that right so if you understand the ideas of the kind of described there and, and the problems that are being solved there you're you're already uh pretty well off in terms of knowledge um and then there's there's some great educators in the space i mean honestly uh four or five years ago it was more difficult to find really good uh good educators and and sources of information and we would always suggest uh, andreas antonopoulos who was kind of a big guru of bitcoin in the in the early days yeah um he wrote a bunch of books and gave talks and everything but um these days honestly uh youtube and uh you can you can basically learn anything you want on youtube as long as you steer clear from the uh you know day trading get rich quick youtube channels <laughs> those, fair those enough are very uh very educational yeah that's fair well and it's it's well i i guess like it's obviously happened to a small amount of people and everybody's hoping that it can happen to them right away right by doing yeah. these things with crypto and i guess you could if you get kind of really lucky but uh i don't know it seems I like mean, yeah go ahead it's it's I, I say steer clear of of the get rich quick scheme people but at the same time of course uh, it isn't like the stock market and isn't like traditional assets it has experienced enormous growth and the space is con continually experiencing enormous growth i mean it's uh it's the 
Uh, I think Bitcoin uh, didn't Wells Fargo or or JP Morgan say something like uh, it's the asset of the cent- uh, the asset of the decade. Um, and uh, I mean, it's it's just grown like crazy and it, it keeps growing. I'm always shocked at the the growth of the space. Um, a couple of years ago, almost nobody was invested in Bitcoin or in crypto or anything like that. Now, basically everybody is. So <laughs> I just saw a survey of investors, um, I think in Europe, and something like 60 or 70% of uh, you know accredited investors in Europe already had some crypto. When I travel around and I talk to people, basically everybody is already invested in crypto or has at least played with it a little bit. Yeah. And uh, completely random people just suddenly say, oh, you're in crypto? Um, what do you think of you know this coin or that coin? Or I bought a bunch of Doge and I made money off of it. Or like I lost a lot of money on Doge. So like basically everybody is is either getting into it, has gotten into it, or has experimented with it. And that's such a huge difference from just three years ago. And um, And if we think just how immature the space still is, that is pretty fascinating. So I don't think the the rise of crypto will will stop anytime soon. Um, that's not to say that you know the prices will only go up, but I think in the long run, um, it, it's looking pretty positive compared yeah. to you know, other other asset classes you could be investing in. No, that's fair. What's your thoughts on NFTs? Do you think there or some variation of that is going to be the future of digital assets? Yeah, so NFTs are interesting. Um, I mentioned CryptoKitties earlier. Uh, they were pretty much the first. I mean, they weren't exactly the first uh, to use this um, non-fungible token standard, I believe. It's ERC721, if I'm not mistaken. But um, they were the first to kind of popularize it. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, um, it, it kind of went quiet after a while. But then after decentralized finance took off, um, NFTs just exploded all over the place. and uh people um, you know attached artworks and music and and uh intellectual property and and all that kind of stuff they just attached to tokens and uh to to more easily buy and sell it and move it around and um to a lot of people i think it's a it's a weird or nonsensical idea that people would spend millions and millions of dollars on a jpeg file um sure yeah but I think it's an important stepping stone in the in the movement from real world into digital world, where we get used to the idea that things can exist only digitally uh, and yet still have real value. Um, and the important thing here is that those NFTs actually do have some kind of real value because uh, they aren't their existence isn't dependent on some company or their existence isn't dependent on some you know some computer having having the file on them. Um, their existence is kind of independent of those things. It's 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 a more objective existence than a lot of other digital things that existed before uh, NFTs. So it's kind of a fascinating uh, topic in itself. Um, you can make the argument that digital art NFTs and, and this kind of thing is in a bit of a bubble where it's just ridiculous that pictures of monkeys are selling for millions of dollars. But then look at the art world, uh, the art world in general, and uh, you'll scratch your head anyway. So um, it's it's not that different, I think. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I think it's kind of fascinating. I also think that we're just at the tip of the iceberg of the creative ways um, people that we're going to see people use the NFT technology from concerts to 
digital assets that aren't even created yet or just being able to like just the scalper thing with tickets yeah. um you know just like there'll be a lot of things that are it, it adds some security around certain things and you know for sure that what you're buying if it's digital is the original right yeah. and i think that's the big thing that a lot of people don't realize it's like well okay sure you could argue that that picture wasn't worth a million dollars but if you can prove that you own the original mm. just like a painting um whether it's digital or physical like that's worth money it's all the replicas that aren't worth very much money exactly exactly and think of um, if we look into the future a little bit, think of think of science fiction uh, books and and movies like Ready yeah. Player One, totally. Um, where you know these people go into this virtual world and and experience like a whole second life in this virtual world. Yeah. The flaw the flaw with a lot of those um, science fiction scenarios is that those virtual worlds they just they're controlled by a single company and they just run on company servers. Right. Um, and and that kind of seems strikes me as unrealistic because mm, if that company goes bankrupt or the government seizes those servers or something happens then that entire um virtual world where people spend a lot of time and effort and money and 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 all that that all that all just vanishes and a, a good example of course is is world of warcraft or, or any of these kind of virtual totally. world games yep. where people spend you know millions and millions of hours and effort on the auction house and and farming gold and and doing all these things and equipping their characters with the best equipment but if blizzard suddenly decides that's the company that develops world of warcraft, world of warcraft of course um if blizzard suddenly decides to you know cut funding for world of warcraft or just shut down the servers then all of that is just erased um and now just introduce nfts and blockchain technology to those kinds of virtual world scenarios where everything you do in the virtual world actually creates lasting value that is independent of blizzard servers that's independent of any of these gaming company servers um and and suddenly the incentives to actually create something in these virtual worlds that has lasting value and real world value are are much much greater and and more people will migrate into the space and try to create something and offer their services offer their products digitally uh, and all this kind of thing so Kind of the rise of NFTs, I think, to me, signals that kind of development, um, yeah. where we we will really start getting into the economics of virtual worlds uh, on a day-to-day -day, um, basis. Uh, and when when people talk about, uh, you know, when when Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about whether we are in a simulation or not, um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the the fact is, we, we're probably not in a simulation right now, or at least it's fifty-fifty but we will create simulations to go into and those simulations will uh have to be based on something like decentralized technology in order to for them to have a, a sufficient realness to create the economic economic incentives for people to actually populate that space and uh and do things there that are worthwhile no i yeah that that's actually really interesting but but sadly we're out of time so how about we close <laughs> with mentioning where people can get more information about Eon Labs and Blockspace and any other links you want to mention? Yeah, um, Eon Labs, that's just the, the website, eonlabs.com. Um, not much to look at. Our, our business is not necessarily consumer facing. Sure. <laughs> it's, uh, our clients are, are hedge funds, essentially. Um, so uh, 
yeah uh, we've written a bunch of articles on on blockchain technology and and the implications of various things um there's a bunch of stuff on my medium uh if people are interested in that and yeah i keep publishing sometimes i should i should do it more but uh you know you're a busy guy yeah <laughs> <laughs> very cool victor well i really appreciate you taking the time and your day to be on the show and i look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day all righty thank you so much thank you okay bye have a good day. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.